Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 13th of April, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, and also Debbie Evans, UK Column Nursing Correspondent. Well, we've got some really good news. Many people say to us uh, that, of course, UK Column News is reporting very serious subjects. Uh, several times a week, and uh, it's important to also cover good news. Now, we're delighted to say that as a result of actions taken by UK Column viewers in support of Sir Christopher Chope, MP, who recently spoke out in Parliament on vaccine adverse reactions, uh, as a result of uh, letters and emails that people sent him, thanking him for his courage in speaking out, uh, we have been able to conduct an exclusive interview with Sir Christopher on the subject of vaccine adverse reactions. So we'll kick off straight away by having a look at the first little clip um, taken from our 50-minute interview with him, which will be av made available very soon. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Welcome to UK Column. I'm delighted to say that today we are joined by Sir Christopher Chope, MP, who has recently spoken out in the House of Commons on the subject of vaccines and vaccine adverse reactions. We covered a little piece of that uh, video clip at the time, and it produced a huge response in our audience. Uh, we had many emails from people saying how pleased they were to hear Sir Christopher speaking up on the subject. And I also think that a few of our uh, viewers actually uh, wrote to Sir Christopher in person to thank him for his, his efforts uh, in trying to bring some of the more serious aspects of vaccines and the adverse effects to the surface. So, Sir Christopher, can I say welcome very much to UK Column and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me and uh, th thank you for giving uh, this issue the oxygen of publicity because um, a lot of people don't really want that to happen and it's important that uh, people are able to know what is going on. And I, I come to this specifically in relation to uh, helping those people who have um, suffered adverse reactions to the vaccines. Uh, so. Um, I'm not an expert on the vaccines themselves or anything like that, but all I do know is that very early on the government made it clear that uh, if there were adverse reactions to the vaccines, then the, the, the compensation scheme or the, um, the, the payment scheme, as, it, as, as it's called, for vaccine damage would come into operation. So we have got the vaccine damage payment scheme based on the 1979 uh, legislation uh, in place but as of today not a single payout has been made under that scheme and I'm trying to campaign to get that scheme first of all under operation effectively and, and also to ensure that the scheme is uh, amended so that it is less um, arbitrary and is more user-friendly. And of course, part of the problem here is that with the MHRA data is that it is not possible to associate groups of reactions with an individual case. So it isn't possible, therefore, to identify patterns uh, of reactions 
amongst people. And so it seems to me, Sir Christopher, that the part of the problem here is that there is no acknowledgement or no willingness from on the on the bit, case of the MHRA to acknowledge that there's a problem uh, or to provide any real analysis of that problem. Um, and so our first step surely must be, therefore, to to uh, require the MHRA to do a better job in that respect. Yeah, abs absolutely. I mean, I, I used the, the privilege of being able to ask parliamentary questions uh, about this and have been really disappointed at the failure to respond to the most basic requests for information. Now, we say to our audience today, these are just some taster clips of the full interview with Sir Christopher Chope. Um, he told us what he was doing, what he was concerned about, but he was then kind enough to uh, allow us to have a discussion with him uh, where we could also put over what we knew was happening and uh, talk in more detail around the whole subject of uh, vaccine adverse reactions and indeed how the whole matter of policy was being reported. So Debbie Evans was with us. Let's uh, go to the second clip and uh, see how that progressed. So Debbie, if we can just bring you in and um, would you like to respond to what Sir Christopher has, has just told us? Well, I mean, Sir Christopher, um, everything that you say, uh, you echo all of my concerns as well. And um, equally, I feel as though I'm being stonewalled by the MHRA. It's not just the MHRA that I've contacted. It's the PEAG group, the pharmacovigilance group um, within the human, uh, the Commission for Human Medicines. Um, that's Professor Jamie Coleman. And I've also written to the Commission for Human Medicines, um, Simonia Piramohet, and I've asked him um, if there will be an investigation into these serious adverse reactions, because like you, um, the vaccine damage payment, although it is, you, you know, we need to be looking at that very seriously, the majority of people that we're speaking to and that we're seeing want exactly what you've just described, which is help. My biggest question is, is that when do health officials um, have a duty of care to warn the public about potential harms that have been detected through pharmacovigilance. And clearly we are seeing many uh, reports, many deaths. And we know um, from looking back that traditionally the yellow card historically is underreported. So we're probably only seeing 10% of yellow cards. Many doctors don't know about the yellow card scheme. Many pharmacists don't know about the yellow card scheme. And the MHRA has assured me in answer to, to questions that they've carried out analyses of all these yellow cards. But when you ask, um, for example, uh, what those analyses result in, how, which are the conditions which are uh, the most um, frequent side effects from each of the vaccines or which are the most serious side effects from each of the vaccines or how many of the 2,000 plus people reported as having died 
shortly after a vaccine, how many of those people have been found to have died because of uh, reasons which were unassociated with the vaccine. All those questions are unanswered. And even the question I've asked as to what is meant by the expression shortly, dying shortly after a vaccine, I asked what is the maximum period which is covered by the expression shortly, and I still haven't had an answer to that. And these, some of these answers, these requests for information go back more than two months. And in Parliament, the answers are meant to come within five or six days of the question being asked. So. That's OK. Um, again, a very relaxed uh, discussion, lots of good information coming out. I'm going to stress that these are clips put together. So when you see the full interview, everything will be fully in context. But what we wanted to do today was to give you a good taster for the, uh, the information that was covered. So let's go to the last clip and, and uh, have a listen to how uh, Sir Christopher Chope summed up uh, the picture that he was seeing. I understand that there may be you know, some coroners who are looking into this in the context of inquests, asking these sorts of questions. Well, you know, what was actually in the vaccine that caused this uh, person to um, have a, um, a pulmonary embolism or whatever it happened to be? Um, and they, I, I think there's a lot more to come out about this and, and the fact that uh, apparently the, va the vaccine manufacturers are um, under no obligation to disclose what's in, in there. I think, I think Debbie's point about the, the comparison between this and um, information about food allergies um, is, is, is telling. Um, uh, but if we're going to be able to promote vaccines, we need to be able to do so um, with absolute confidence that they're safe. And that, um, it, so if something goes uh, wrong, um, then the people who've suffered get looked after. And that's why quite a lot of jurisdictions internationally are becoming, are making it easier to make claims uh, where if you've uh, suffered loss or damage as a result of the vaccine in the absence of any other explanation, it's easier to make claims uh, because uh, they see that that's a way of helping to build vaccine confidence. And I'm, I, what I'm worried about is that the head in the sand attitude of the government and the MHRA is actually going to end up being counterproductive that it's going to uh, cause people to be unnecessarily nervous in certain circumstances about uh, whether or not uh, to, to have a vaccine. So um, there's, a, there's some really important public policy issues at, at, at stake here. You've said about writing to MPs, is there anything else the audience can do to, to help your initiative? Well, I, I, I just think getting more more publicity for, for this issue and, and bringing it out into the open. Um, and I think some people have been expecting that um, with now that everybody had been vaccinated uh, or who wanted to be vaccinated, that it would be easier for the government to um, relax on its assertion that uh, the, all the vaccines at all material times were absolutely, absolutely safe. But now we're moving to a situation where the government seems to be encouraging people to have the, 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 the fourth, uh, a, a second booster or a fourth jab. And so one wonders whether the, the government is going to uh, stop the 
the sort of the propaganda is propaganda machine in support of vaccines and start uh, looking at the issue more rationally as to whether or not um, there are any downsides to these vaccines which should be brought to the attention of, of the people before they're given. So uh, I, I live in hope that that's where we're going to get to. Um, but we need the, the active support of the MHRA if, we, if we're going to do that, because they are the body that's charged with the responsibility. Mm. So overall, uh, an extremely good interview. And what was particularly nice for UK Column was that Sir Christopher Choke was not only telling us about what he was doing, he was also interested in what we, un what we knew, what we understood. And we've agreed to provide him with uh, letters and emails that we hold between ourselves and MHRA, June Rain and, and her other senior colleagues. And we're also going to provide him with uh, the video interview, the tragic video interview, which we did many months ago of the lady whose husband had become paralysed following a vaccination. So I think very productive interview. And we'll just repeat that this has largely come about due to the very positive uh, correspondence the UK column viewers have sent off to Sir Christopher. And we should mention that uh, part of that interview also covers uh, online safety issues, which are in fact related. Indeed, yeah. So let's chop across to an email from a, a viewer, which is uh, uh, setting the scene really. Uh, but on Monday, we talked about the fact that uh, uh, the vaccine injury uh, was going to pass through the uh, insurance company Crawford & Co. And this was the email that's come in to us. I've just watched your Monday news programme and couldn't believe my ears when I heard that the vaccine injury catastrophe is going to be in the hands of the loss adjuster company Crawford & Co. This company dealt with my insurance claims uh, for subsistence and I was not impressed with it at all. Emails went to the wrong department, phone calls weren't returned. I even had photos of somebody else's property sent to me on not just one occasion, but three after I had complained. I had constantly to chase them. I don't hold out much hope for justice being done with this company in charge. Well, of course, this is one response on the company, but uh, it is interesting that somebody's had a bad Sorry. experience there. Right. Right, you've got a bit of a preview of this one, uh, but fine. it's fine. Uh, Debbie, of course, on Wednesday was mentioning the uh, the pandemic preparedness treaty that's going on. Uh, there, is, there are public hearings being held uh, by the World Health Organization on this issue. Uh, and there is a deadline of, uh, well, that's uh, 1700 CEST. So that'd be four o'clock this afternoon for any written submissions uh, for those public hearings. Um, so these are public hearings regarding the new international instrument on pand pandemic preparedness and response. Um, and uh, so if anybody wants to contribute to that, uh, you've got until four o'clock this afternoon. The URL's at the top there. That's inb.who.int slash home slash written dash submissions. Okay. And uh, this one came into us today, which is uh, uh, the, what describes itself as the first open letter on the WHO's pandemic treaty. It's dated the 1st of March 2022 from the World Council for Health. Now, I don't know a great deal about this organisation. We will be having a deeper look. But the person who sent this in said uh, it appears that other people are now waking up to the potential dangers of this uh, treaty and uh, what it can what it what it potentially it can do to enforcing future mandatory vaccinations uh, 
And lockdowns, I suppose, as uh, well. Indeed, yeah. Um, well, let's come on to this then. Here is the panoramic study, uh, and this is all about help helping to find effective early treatments for COVID-19. Uh, this is uh, the antivirals, uh, mainly. Um, and of course, the, pan the panoramic is a national study. Uh, the government says it's the UK's fastest ever recruiting clinical trial of its kind. It's being run by the University of Oxford uh, in co collaboration with GP hubs. Uh, this study makes antivirals available to a large number of patients while collecting further data on how the antivirals work, where the majority of adult population is vaccinated. Uh, and of course, you may view that as being uh, some kind of lab rat experiment going on. Uh, but uh, the, the, the fantastic news, Debbie, is, uh, and I say that with dripping with sarcasm, is that Paxlovid has been now added to the panoramic study. Uh, and so the government has secured 2.75 million doses of Paxlovid, or courses of Paxlovid from Pfizer. Uh, and that's uh, <clears throat> being added to the uh, to the list of antivirals uh, on this uh, this uh, program or this uh, trial. So here's what Sajid Javid had to say. As we learn to live with COVID, the UK continues to lead the way in using cutting edge treatments, uh, which have already saved the lives of many of the country's most vulnerable patients. I'd need to see some citation or some evidence for that, but anyway, that's what he had to say. So I just wanted, uh, Debbie, first of all, to welcome you to the program and, and see what your thoughts are on this development. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you, Mike. No, I'm horrified. Uh, these antivirals, we've been warning about them for a very long time. Um, I don't see any data with regards to either molnupiravir or Paxlovid as to serious side effects, but we know that these drugs are on trial. And this is what we've been saying all along. There are new pharmaceuticals coming down the line, too many to mention now, but um, they are on trial, but they're not tested. So very, very worrying. Yes, okay, well, let's uh, move to Alex then. Welcome to the program. And uh, well, we've got global research here and the headline is uh, Digital uh, Tyranny, uh, the EU Digital COVID Vaccine Certificate Framework. There's a couple of pieces, in fact, several that the excellent Canadian based website Global Research has put together on the EU's end of the same international worldwide consultation that you've just covered, Mike. And so we have Jim Stone talking about mandatory vaccination in the EU just slipping under the radar. It was previously a member state competence. The second headline by the very widely respected Professor Michel Rosudowski uh, in Canada says that the EU has a digital COVID vaccine certificate framework. Well, that's not controversial, that's fact. And he, in the headline or his editor, calls that digital tyranny. Now, if we bring that slide back on, uh, we'll just see uh, what it is that uh, people have been contacting me mainly about, which is that there has been just closed an EU, an extension to the public consultation time period running to the 8th of uh, April from, from uh, early February about this initiative. Now, this has been much shared on social media, starting with the Dutch version of it. And um, I, I just want to put on a notice that I am crunching through the original document because there have been some pretty eye-watering claims about the number of things that the EU is going to be permitted to do if this all goes through. And I need to get my head around the legal niceties of it. Just picking on the, up on the rest of the segment as well with the legal aspects of it. Sir Christopher was asked by Devi quite correctly about a duty of care on public authorities. 
if we think back to 1978 and the South Wales case of Eleanor Bai, whose uh, who's, uh, parents for the rest of their life, because her father, Derek, has recently passed on, com campaigned uh, about the uh, unnecessary death of her as a teenager, given uh, aggressive pharmaceutical experimental treatment. In that case, it was found that the, the hospital and the NHS centrally admitted after many years through clenched teeth that they did actually have a duty of candour, a nice British establishment way of saying an expectation to tell the truth about what they knew. It came out of that that British and worldwide pharmaceutical companies regarded teenagers in South Wales as an ideal laboratory for testing things that later could be flogged to adults for a lot of money. So these are part of the so-called equitable principles of government. They're not in statute law in most countries, regardless of civil or common law jurisdiction. They're a set of principles for how the government, particularly the executive, is supposed to conduct itself. So look widely around these issues of duty of care, duty of candour. Likewise, when we're talking about the European Union or worldwide and this treaty pandemic, the central thing to always bear in mind is that treaties bind executives and executive agencies, such as a health agency in your country or your relevant part of the country. Uh, they can be, executives can be told, if you don't implement this, a world body will fine you, the inspectors will come around from the, the world whatnot. Uh, and so that can trickle down to local health or council level, but it's all entirely within the executive. National courts and national parliaments are unaffected affected by treaties, even if the sovereign is using their treaty signing powers, and even if Parliament has so-called ratified uh, a treaty in your jurisdiction. It's a sleight of hand because we need to bear in mind the separation of powers and that it's the judicial and legislative bodies in each country that are going to have to be prevailed upon to stop the executives claiming right over body and mind and soul through these international treaties. Yeah, Alex, could I just get you to clarify that just one, uh, one little bit? Because uh, to what degree, because if, if there is a ratification process, because as you say, the treaties are an executive uh, power, if there is a, a ratification process in Parliament in the UK, for example, on this, to what degree do, do MPs actually get to contribute to, to because obviously the treaty is already written, it's only a case of do we accept it or not, is that right? Yes, ultimately, it's part of the same confidence trick as how the Privy Council, through orders in council and through its judicial function, can actually be judge, jury, legislator, executioner, the whole lot, without reference to any of the three separated branches. Even though England specifically came up with these branches, uh, in, as described by Montesquieu, and the whole world uh, then implemented this uh, separation of powers, including the US after the revolution, actually, when it comes down to it, uh, Parliament is there. I think it's not too much of a push to say for show. We've covered in the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution that this was admitted in terms by the late 19th century um, pro-clique uh, pro uh, writers, you know, A.V. Dicey and before him, uh, Bajho. Uh, so it, it is a confidence trick. But on the other hand, the coronation oath does say that we'll be governed according to our laws and customs. So if it's become a codified custom that we do get to ratify, and in other countries like the Netherlands here, it's a constitutional hard requirement in black and white. Parliament must ratify, otherwise it's invalid and judges must set aside the treaty. Then that's what to insist on. Hold, sorry to say it this way, but hold the crown's feet to the fire. Yes. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, as we move on into the uh, next segment, I'll, I'll just say you, you mentioned their duty of care, you mentioned duty of candour. I think there's another duty uh, beholden on the agencies that are supposed to look after safety for the UK public, and that's due diligence. And our, <coughs> excuse me, our question has consistently been, um, has the MHRA uh, operated with due diligence in order to protect public safety? And in particular, with respect to the yellow card vaccine adverse reactions, 
I think our answer is that uh, we do not believe they have. Um, now, Debbie, you found this uh, video clip of June Rain. It's very short. We'll listen to it and then we'll invite you to comment on what you picked up from seeing a very young and fresh-faced June Rain speaking about yellow cards. And that was his insight, laser-like insight, straight to the heart of the issue. And if you read Hansard, which I have to do, on the 8th of November 2001, when Dr Liam Fox asked, what is happening with bupropion, that mainstay of public health and smoking cessation? And I was able to say, we amended that dosage regime to delay the increase from day four to day seven, and the adverse event signal went away. And it's that purity of insight that might have taken many another regulator, this is the Canadians bemoaning their lack of expertise, took many another regulator to get to that point. Of course, we benefited enormously from Alistair's leadership and championing of the yellow card scheme. Again and again, we're asked, is it not outmoded? Has it not passed its sell-by date? But that rapid ability to detect an emerging signal, Alistair knew was the cornerstone of our world. He championed it, he welcomed the report of an independent review on access to data, and so for the first time, we allowed patients and carers to report to us. And as you probably know, most of the reports on the COVID vaccine adverse effects that are observed come from just that community, first-hand, that enables us to act swiftly. Alistair's growing international reputation for leadership in the field led to the Institute of Medicines calling him in to that landmark report, a report that changed our world because... So, Debbie, there, there we have it. June Rain saying, quote, we allowed people to uh, report the adverse effects that they'd suffered, not it was our duty to collect the data in order to protect the... Uh, to protect the public, but we allowed them to put these reports in. This is this is extraordinary and outrageous statement by June Rain on behalf of the MHRA. Yeah, it's like they're uh, they're doing us a favour, isn't it? And uh, rapid ability. Where is that rapid ability? I don't see any ability, and I don't see anything rapid going on. And that's a very interesting little YouTube, you know, because she goes on to say that um, she's got a sore arm from the booster. Well, I wonder if she reported a, a yellow card. She also goes on to talk about the MHRA being an enabler as well. So it's quite a little dynamite video that, and I think there's only been 74 views. And very quickly, because I know that we're, we're, we're short of time, but I just wanted to go back to what Alex um, said a minute ago about candor because I think the language has changed. But when I was speaking to Jeremy Hunt on the Zoom with regards to our adverse reactions, he did actually say in his reply that the government have a duty of candor. So I think we should look at that word in a little bit more depth. And the second point I just wanted to say was with regards to the World Council for Health, our representative in the World Council for Health is Dr. Tess Laurie. And I would I get updates from the World Council of Health. They're very, very useful. So if anybody wants to go and have a look at them, please do, because they've got some great information. OK, thanks for that, Debbie. And of course, you, you're always saying what exactly is the MHRA, poacher, gamekeeper? It's a very confused picture. 
we're going to say thank you to a viewer that sent us this email through because they'd actually asked a question of AstraZeneca. This is the reply. Dear Steve, thank you for your email. Yes, AstraZeneca monitor, assess and investigate all adverse reactions for all our med medicinal products uh, received from all sources, which include the MHRA yellow card scheme. Now, you, you have said to us that you believe that the MHRA is not investigating its own yellow card vaccine adverse reaction data in any form. They're not doing any investigation, any risk assessment. They're simply passing the data back to the pharmaceutical companies. And this email would appear to suggest that this is the case, in which case the public is just being deceived because the MHRA is nothing to do with uh, safety of the public for pharmaceutical and vaccine products whatsoever. Exactly, exactly that. The, what role do the MHRA actually have? They are no safety regulator. I can't see the word safe being used anywhere. And until we get answers from the MHRA, well, we have to keep pressurizing them. And clearly, as you could see with Sir Christopher Choke, um, he's not getting answers from the MHRA either. So we need to keep pressing them. In fact, in my opinion, there's so many conflicts of interest on the board, they should all be sacked immediately. Yes, well, let's put this on screen then. The MHRA is tweeting this out. Uh yesterday. Uh, we have launched a consultation on how we manage conflicts of interest for independent experts to ensure consistency and transparency in all of our decision making. And my first question is, why is this only happening now? Because surely this is something that was required from the beginning. But anyway, they, they've decided to do this. This is a six-week consultation launched yesterday. It outlines a number of key proposals that will strengthen the current code of practice. Uh, to ensure that experts providing the MHRA with, with advice are independent and impartial, and that the processes in place to manage conflicts of interest are robust and clear to all. So they say that they are committed to responding to the recommendations set out in the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Review. And it seems that the only reason they're doing this is because of the recommendations in that review. Uh, and so they're taking steps to be a more transparent and inclusive independent regulator. So what are they talking about? They're talking about a register of interests accessible to all through gov.uk, which will be updated to reflect any changes from members. The provision of more guidance on interests to ensure that members can provide relevant information if or when their circumstances change. Encouraging greater inclusion of patient experts uh, in expert groups and committee discussions so that individuals uh, with lived and personal experience can contribute to discussions. Uh, a new panel process to advise on complex or novel conflicts to ensure standards are upheld consistently. Uh, and uh, the changes proposed, they say, will impact all expert groups, including the Commission on Human Medicines. And uh, it's just, uh, I just want to briefly mention the, uh, the expert groups here. We've got the Commission on Human Medicines, but also the Devices Expert Advisory Committee, the British Pharmacopoeia uh, Commission, the Herbal Medicines uh, Advisory, Advisory Committee, the Advisory Board for Registration of Homeopathic Products, the UK Stem Cell Bank Steering Committee, and the Review Committee, and that last one carries out statutory and non-statutory reviews of proposals, decisions, and provision, uh, provisional decisions taken by the MHRA. So here's what uh, June Rain had to say. We know that trust is an important factor in our role as regulator. We want to attract and retrain, retain the right expertise in those who give the regulator 
independent advice, but the public should also feel confident uh, those called upon to give their expert opinions do so in an impartial way. Uh, this consultation, which I encourage all to respond to, demonstrates how seriously we take independent and impartial advice on our regulatory decisions. Uh, but Debbie, my question is, why is it only happening now? Well, that's a $64,000 question, isn't it, Mike? Why, why? None of this was set up before, none of it. Although, was it planned? Was there, has everything been planned? And this is just a smokescreen for the MHRI, because interestingly, in that video um, that um, you've just shown, if you carry on in that video a little bit, if viewers and listeners want to look, you can see that the MHRA are talking about that having left Europe, we don't want to become a third world regulator. So the ambition is to become this global regulator, this enabler. But I mean, it is the $64,000 question to which, of course, we don't yet have the answers. Yes. Um, Alex, uh, let's uh, come to COVID and the military then. There has been a quite explosive testimony given uh, in a judicial hearing in the United States by a doctor, Teresa Long, uh, medical doctor, uh, who apparently, we don't have video because it was uh, behind closed doors, but apparently became very tearful when she admitted that her commanding officer, since she is a, a medical uh, person in the military, called her up the night before her testimony and told her, on no account are you to tell the truth about what the military knows in its database about adverse vaccine reactions. So uh, the news that the, the uh, the, the photograph I'm showing here is from Newspunch, simply because they're one of the few sources that have got uh, a full-size image of her. But uh, they actually link through, first of all, to the British-based Daily Exposé, uh, which is one step closer to the source. Their headline is, Military Doctor testifies in court that she was ordered to cover up and suppress a huge amount of COVID-19 vaccine injuries. Um, we will see in the, uh, the body of that, that the expose are good enough to link through to the original source, Liberty Council. We'll see them in a minute. They are a pro bono, so for free, um, US uh, attorney uh, for those with religious uh, objections, which of course is what the service people in the various US military branches have uh, in almost all cases appealed to in vain in a very cynical way. So we read that it's a US federal uh, district judge for the Middle District of Florida to whom she was speaking, Judge Mary Day. Uh, then there's mention of a podcast, which I think is worth zooming in on, actually, but that will happen in a moment. The write-up in the expose continues, lifting this from Liberty Council. Dr Long testified that she was contacted by a high-level officer the night before her hearing and told not to discuss, well, you can freeze the screen and read the rest, but uh, I'm summarising from the podcast in a, that I'll talk about in a moment, what she was, the, 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 the really... Uh, hot stuff she was told not to admit was that the military knew jolly well from its internal systems that there was a huge spike in adverse reactions. Uh, that's the data in the DMED or DMED, which is on screen at the moment, uh, because the military's um, uh, disingenuous case seems to have been they couldn't see any difference with background data in their own figures. Um, let's go on and see where this podcast is. It's the Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. If people wish to listen, it's the second half hour. So listen from just after 30 minutes in this episode, Pentagon covering up mass vaccine injury in the military with guest Matt Staver. And again, the Daily Expose's write-up of that is on screen. The middle paragraph there says that Staver says the information the Pentagon has been presenting in court, so this would be perjury if Staver's correct, is, quote, outdated, wrong, 
and would really be subject to dismantling under cross-examination. So he's getting back to the duty of candor. Of course, in the US, they they make no bones about it, uh, even if a, a pseudo world court and a pseudo world regulator, such as we now have in health, uh, has told your national executive, do things this way and not that way. The US was going to be about the last country in the world to accept that. They're going to say, no, our national legislator and our national courts and local courts are going to decide on that. Uh, DOD acting as if it were above the law, end of the quote. Liberty Council itself in its write-up entitled Dramatic Testimony in Military Shot Mandate Case, shot of course in the sense of jab, uh, let's look at the relevant part here. I've actually made a silent video of this which we won't read uh, through in full but it shows you uh, at least um, what the whole of the original source is so if you read one thing on it make it this. Uh, I just have to tap that again to start the video going, I think. So you see an all-day hearing from the Navy commander of a service warship and three military flight surgeons uh, on acting on Colonel Long's behalf, the doctor. The DOD, the Pentagon, produced nobody against them. Uh, then we see that the Deputy Department of Defense had claimed that the ship could not be deployed uh, because the commander was uh, refusing uh, jabs and the Pentagon had so-called lost confidence in him. Then we see that a Purple Heart recipient, Dr. Chambers, is in the Texas National Guard, that's the State Reserve, uh, and had uh, serious uh, mistreatment as well, which so many uh, people who haven't, haven't taken the jab in the US military have had. Uh, Dr. Long is then brought on. When her counsel said, would you please tell us uh, about this DMED database the Pentagon has, she said tearfully, I have been ordered not to answer that question. The Judge Meriday immediately asked, ordered by whom? Then she uh, tearfully revealed what had gone on and she said, I have so many soldiers being destroyed by this vaccine. Not a single member of my senior command has discussed my concerns with me. She also testified that based on the VAERS database, the American equivalent of the MHRA's yellow card system, deaths of service people from the vaccines exceed deaths from COVID itself. That's in the Pentagon's own statistics, though they're claiming they didn't have it. Finally, there's a section on a testimony from a Dr. Tankersley. So there is a huge amount actually going on there. And I think that in the days to come, Liberty Council and those who pick up on their reporting are going to find quite a lot more coming out about the Pentagon and what it knew when. Yes. Okay. Uh, so then, uh, bring us on to onto this one. Then, William Engel. Uh, Willem Engel is, uh, if I remember correctly, a former pilot from the Netherlands and has distinguished himself by being the most peaceful and lawful um, of all the many Dutch activists uh, against COVID repression in its various forms. John Goss at johnplatinumgoss.com is on many issues, including this one, one of the finest bloggers. Uh, he, while Engel was still locked up for the second time uh, in, in a few weeks, brought this out, support Willem Engel. He's in prison for all of us. Uh, we see that uh, we, um, uh, the agenda, according to Willem Engel, is very clear. Agenda 2030, build back better, new normal, Kafka-esque trial. And I can uh, uh, testify from here in the Netherlands that Goss is right, that the arresting officers the second time, uh, there's a bit of a long backstory, which we hope we'll be able to present directly from UK Column Material soon. But when Willem Engel was uh, arrested for supposedly breaching uh, his undertaking uh, not to post on social media while he was being accused of incitement to hatred for his social media posts, a special police unit came, we'll see a bit of the video played out silently in a moment, and refused to identify them themselves as well as wearing balaclavas. So they were coming as kidnapping gangsters, not as police officers. Um, and they, they several times in the Dutch video say, we don't have to identify ourselves. And uh, 
uh, I know that this is uh, unlawful in the Netherlands. Everyone knows that this is one of the few uh, European countries where a policeman is obliged when uh, challenged to give his uh, not just his number, but his name. Only a couple of Scandinavian countries uh, say that a policeman doesn't have to identify himself anyway. Anyway, the Netherlands is quite express on this. So I'm going to start the silent video here of what appears to be a special political anti-dissident team within the police with the balaclavas up, uh, telling Engel at the wheel of his car since they forced him to the side of the road from their vans, you've got to come out now, you've breached your bail conditions. Uh, watch carefully as Engel gets out of the car because you will see the menacing hand on uh, re uh, on revolver or at least hand on holster for a few seconds. Willem Engel's partner notices this and speaks about it. While this is going on, they are repeatedly refusing to identify themselves, contrary to law, not even giving numbers. They haven't got their faces identified. Fortunately, after a couple of days in custody where he was very sympathetically treated, he's spoken to Dolores Cahill about this on TNT radio already, um, Engel got uh, to have his day in court and the, uh, he got an old-fashioned lawful judge who said even in a civil law system uh, this is ridiculous because the prosecutor's cases Engel uh, breached his undertaking not to express himself on social media for a given time as part of a bail uh, agreement but he cannot alienate those rights he has inalienable rights or unalienable if you prefer that word and even if it's true that he signed an undertaking not to post on social media about what he thinks about COVID repression uh, this is not lawful he cannot alienate those rights uh, even if he wishes to. So Engel is being remarkably self-controlled for what are effectively two unlawful gangsters refusing to show that they are policemen. Uh, he has, as I say, since been uh, brought out of uh, prison. Uh, this is on the Clock and Louders or Whistleblowers channel uh, on uh, uh, Telegram, one of the main Dutch sources uh, for this kind of thing. And as I say, um, we have been in touch with Willem Engel, and it may be that we'll be able to get Dutch language and English language content directly from him on his struggle. I'm particularly impressed by the lawfulness he uh, enunciates in his struggle and uh, how he advises people that if they wish to be any kind of activist, they have to live at peace with their own family members who disagree with them. Otherwise, he says, you have no guarantee that you will be able to act lawfully and calmly uh, to, with regard to the outside world. And I think he's quite right about that. Sorry, Brian, you were muted there. I do apologize. I was muted. All right, I'll, I'll just repeat that <laughs> um, uh, and say, as I was watching that little clip, uh, Alex, uh, what came into my head is that those policemen not identified balaclavas, so they can't be recognized. This is the sort of smear that would be thrown back against Russia, Putin's Russia. And yet here we are in the West, in, in Holland, supposedly a democracy, with the very police procedures um, that we would have uh, accused a few years ago of coming out of the Soviet Union itself. We seem to have a complete reversal in societies going on at the moment. Even most Dutch policemen uh, would be disgusted by this, even those of the same young generation and fairly flippant character that you get if you're brought up in the Netherlands these days would be disgusted by the menacing uh, hand on revolver butt. And if you listen to the soundtrack as well, the flippant way in which they use the English word, yes, to say, got it, mate, get out now. Uh, as if it was, you know, uh, just just having an, an argument in the school playground and and uh, and somebody shoots back, Lionel Messi's the best striker. Yes, 
you know, it's completely inappropriate for the circumstances, even if you bear in mind that there is a very flippant and low vocabulary uh, culture developed in the Netherlands. But Willem Engel has made the point repeatedly in his interviews, and I think he's correct, across the European continent and I think the English-speaking world, there are police within police. In David Scott's speech in Kirkcaldy once uh, called Scotland's secret shame, he says that policemen there have called it the, the shadow police in the Scottish case. They know about the political dirt. They know whom to target and intimidate. Um, uh, even in this clip, they tell Willem Engel's partner, you can stay sitting. You know, it's a kind of uh, a trick with words, as, as if she was not free to get out of the car to film the incident more clearly. And of course, she saw straight through that. Most policemen in the Netherlands and Belgium and anywhere else where this is going on do not know this is happening and do not endorse it. It's a police within a police. Yeah. OK, OK, let's move on then. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you could uh, pick something up at the UK Column shop, which is at shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, also, please do share any material you see on the various platforms. That would be extremely useful as well. And then finally, we'd just like to mention once again, uh, we are taking an Easter, an Easter break. Uh, so there'll be no UK column news on Friday and Monday uh, this coming weekend. Should we repeat that, Mike? You go ahead. <laughs> we'll say no UK column news Friday and Monday. I've just done that because many people seem to miss it when we say that we're not going to be doing a news. And it's obvious that that causes some stress and agitation. So uh, pass, pass the message on, please. Um, OK, so uh, let's have a look at this. The Office for National Statistics this morning has uh, released the latest inflation numbers. And uh, well, here's where we are. If we uh, draw a line across uh, to, from the peak today, which I think is something uh, around 7%. Uh, and uh, well, the last time it was at that sort of level uh, was March 1992. Um, so we're uh, getting in pretty rough territory, it seems. So uh, this is higher than was expected. So people were expecting it to go up to 6.7%. Everybody knows why, why this has happened. Uh, fuel prices, uh, food prices, and so on. Uh, so that comes uh, today. Uh, on Monday, uh, the UNS had said that GDP had increased by only 0.1% in February. Uh, on Tuesday, the Office for National Statistics had reported that uh, basic income, basic pay had dropped to minus 1%. Uh, you know, uh, the increase in basic pay had dropped to minus 1% and was now what they said was falling noticeably in real terms. Uh, with uh, amongst all this inflation. Um, and of course, one of the key drivers of this, aside from uh, fuel for uh, vehicles, is the price of oils and fats for food. Uh, and that has increased by 7.2% in March. Uh, and that means that it has, uh, that's an 18% year on year rise from the same time last year. Uh, and this is, of course, because uh, the uh, main suppliers for sunflower flour oil in particular are Russia and Ukraine. Um, but, uh, well, let's bring this on screen then. So this is the world, uh, the uh, United Nations talking about uh, world food prices hitting record highs. Uh, again, it'll be no surprise to anybody. They're talking about 12.6% in uh, March, uh, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization. Uh, so this is an, an index value of 159.3. They say it's uh, well <laughs> beyond being record level. Um, so... Uh, uh, the average wheat price, they're saying, was up about 20% in March. Corn price up 19%. Vegetable oils up 23.2%. Uh, and uh, the, the most, uh, well, let's have a look at sugar, 20% higher. Uh, dairy, 23.6% higher. 
So the situation not getting better. And under those circumstances, Brian, would you not assume that perhaps the government might want to do something about increasing uh, the UK's food production? Uh, well, no, uh, because yesterday they decided that the best thing they could do was to launch the lump sum exit scheme through DEFRA for, well, this headline saying retiring farmers. This isn't about retiring farmers uh, as such. It's about farmers in England who want to leave the industry, whether they're retiring or they just want to leave. Uh, and so what the government is saying here is that uh, the new lump sum exit scheme will provide a payment so they can exit the sector in a managed way. In return, farmers will be expected to either rent or sell their land uh, or surrender their tenancy in order to create opportunities for new entrants. But of course, the new entrants, what are they going to be? Well, they're going to be younger people. They're going to be people that have been tra trained in the uh, in the the Green New Deal mentality and the uh, Agenda 2030 mentality, people yeah. that are much more likely to be wanting to jump on the uh, rewilding bandwagon. And so I'm asking very uh, clearly why or what, you know, how can this uh, result in more food production? Two things. Uh, we know what's coming. They're called land managers. That's the new name for the people who are going to be entrusted with farming. And you're quite right. They're going to be trained. They're going to be given university education where they'll uh, be groomed in the Great Reset and all the rest of this agenda. But of course, common sense tells us that this policy can't be right. So what is the government doing? The government is continuing to destroy infrastructure in UK in, in, in this uh, circumstance, farming, and our ability to produce food. So no mystery here. The government is actively taking actions, which is going to cause pain and suffering in UK. We're going to be short of food. And as world food prices go up, we're going to be in, in a worse position than if we were growing as much food as we could ourselves. Yes. OK, let's move on to Ukraine then. And uh, we'll bring the BBC on here. Uh, Kramatorsk station attack, what we know so far. Uh, well, I'm not going to go into much of the detail of what the BBC is saying here, but of course this is the alleged Russian attack on uh, the train station in Kramatorsk, uh, killing 50 civilians and so on. Blamed on Russia, uh, but let's have a look. The, here's the Guardian. I had blood all over me. Uh, survivors face long road to recovery. And of course the narrative is uh, Russia. Uh, the OSCE here. The Russian Federation's ongoing aggression against Ukraine, the attack on Kramatorsk of 8th of April 2022. So this is very much about Russia. And in the OSCE yesterday, uh, the wonderful Neil Bush, who's the UK's representative of the OSCE, said, OSCE said uh, two missile strikes in the middle of the day on a crowd reported to be over a thousand people waiting for trains to escape Russia's onslaught. Uh, one further horrific act in this premeditated, unjustified invasion by Russia of Ukraine. One further incident involving innocent civilians. As we come to expect, the Russian disinformation machine immediately kicked into work. The Russian government continue their futile attempts to distract and deflect us from their own actions through their blizzard of lies. He, he is describing his, his government's media system in the UK. That is a perfect description of, of what the media has become in UK and the West. Uh, 100%. So the media absolutely and the OSCE and the UK government and the US government putting this incident at the uh, feet of the Russians. But is that accurate? Uh, let's bring uh, Moon of Alabama on here. And uh, they have more evidence that the Ukraine fired the missile, uh, which, sorry, that Ukraine fired the missile, which killed uh, dozens at that train station. And so what are they saying? That the uh, 
The particular missile which stuck, struck the train station at uh, Kramatorsk, killing over 50 civilians and immediately blamed on Russia despite their denials, has been identified by its serial number as one of the Ukraine's army missile, sorry, Ukraine army's missiles. Um, and uh, so the evidence is that the serial number on the wreckage of the missile found near the station is from a stock owned by the Ukraine army. Uh, that report uh, documents the serial, uh, sorry, the serial numbers of several other missiles fired in the Donbass by Ukrainian army over the years, including one recently. Uh, and so, uh, Alex, maybe we could ask for your thoughts on this because uh, Neil Bush claiming that the Russian uh, disinformation machine uh, running full pelt here, but the evidence is clear, it seems to me anyway. Well, let's just go back to basics. Uh, diplomats, such as permanent representatives to international organizations, are part of the executive branch of government. They're not part of the military. They're not part of any judicial investigation. And OK, the OSCE is one of the smaller international organizations. It is set up by treaty, but it doesn't have its own international judicial organ like some of the larger ones. But the whole point of these international talking shops, without any disrespect meant by using this colloquial term, is that they wait for judicial investigation, whether it be national or international. There is only rhetoric coming from Mr. Bush these days. Yes. Uh, and. Well, the question is how much truth is in that rhetoric, and I think not very much. Not very much. Um, well, this was sent through to us this morning. Uh, it's a conservative missive, which has come directly from Boris Johnson. It's particularly unpleasant. I'm not sure who the Philip is. I, I think this may well have been sent to local government, uh, local conservative associations. But if anybody is connected with the Conservative Party and they can tell us, we'd be interested to know. Let's read it. Dear Philip, I am just back from meeting uh, President Zelensky in Kiev for the first time since Ru uh, Russia's invasion. I saw firsthand the tragic effects of the war, an inexcusable and unnecessary war. Ukraine has uh, defied the odds and pushed back Russia, for Russian forces from the gates of Kiev, achieving the greatest feat of arms of the 21st century. Well, that's a, an incredible claim, but this is where it gets particularly unpleasant. The United Kingdom stands unwaveringly with the people of Ukraine in this ongoing fight, and we are in it for the long run. That is why I announce further support. 120 armoured vehicles, new anti-ship missile systems, 800 anti-tank missiles, and $500 million more in economic guarantees. This support is on top of the 10,000 anti-tank missiles, 400 million of humanitarian and economic aid we committed to date, and sanctions against Putin's corrupt elite. There is a huge amount to do to make sure that Ukraine is successful Putin must fail. Yours sincerely, Boris Johnson. I'm sure I'm not alone in, find, in finding this one of the most offensive documents that I think has come out from Boris Johnson, a man, of course, who's just been fined for breaking his own lockdown rules, but that's uh, for a report another time. But it seems to me the rate that the Ukrainians are getting through very, very expensive uh, anti-tank missiles means that UK, if we're in it for the long run, is going to be bankrupt in a very short time. Uh, huge amounts of money, Mike. Yes. And uh, what what is what's taking place here, of course, is that the Ukrainians getting the missiles for free are firing them off as if they were fireworks. 
with no responsibility as to the number of missiles or the cost or the economic value uh, damage to UK. So we'll leave particularly Conservative Party members to have a think about that uh, missive. But uh, let's just pop this on screen with a picture that tells a thousand words. Uh, Russia today with a picture of Britain's prime minister on the left versus Putin on the right. Um, I think this sums it up perfectly. We have Boris Johnson. Alex, you're a good man at uh, English and grammar. How can we possibly describe the state of Britain's prime minister? Gaunt, haggard, dishevelled, mop top. <laughs> yeah. OK, we'll leave it there. Yeah. OK, so let's uh, move on to uh, Alex. This uh, how Britain helped bring Ukraine's army up to scratch. This is in The Telegraph. Very interesting piece. I will cover it as summarily as possible because I know we're on the stops for time. But look, uh, a loose-lipped general has given away quite a lot again. Here he is in a somewhat insouciant pose, uh, Sir Nick Parker, a general, um, who is described by The Telegraph in yesterday's piece as a man known to back himself even if he, quote, got told off afterwards. That's what he said to the Telegraph, that phrase. So we see that two years after the Maidan coup, uh, a bunch of advisors from the most pro-Ukrainian uh, nationalist countries, so the US, Canada, New Europe and the UK, not continental Western Europe, was assembled. Uh, let's put that back on screen and see what uh, goes on uh, from, from there, because there's a couple of interesting things in the slide. Uh, we see that the armed forces were no good. The insurrection in the Donbass, that's the refusal by those people to live uh, among a government that banned them from speaking their own language, was contained only after what Sir Nick calls frantic scrambling pulled forces together. Extraordinary volunteers who picked them up. Committed people. Hmm, what kind of ideology are we talking about? So five countries became the quint, guided by Sir Nick uh, Parker, with no MOD backing from London. In fact, as the piece goes on, he says he deplores how they were so um, uh, bureaucratic as not to give him a free hand. These are 30-somethings in civilian clothes who were full of vibrant energy. Uh, respect from the Ukrainian establishment because they had halted the insurrection, that is, uh, squashed the Donbass. In the psyche of the Ukrainians, there was respect for these people who'd held the line. Think of that clip of Zelensky confronting the militia in 2019 after he'd been diddled. He had at the bottom of this slide, uh, his role, his brief was to inculcate an emerging culture and identity, a frank admission that Ukraine as a modern state hadn't got one yet, which had been born in, in 2014, not in 1991 or earlier. Lots of admissions here. Uh, so the Ukrainians, just picking up on what you said, Brian, uh, were marvellous to these uh, Anglo and Eastern European deep state people uh, because they were prepared to let things go bang with very little uh, equipment and they were prepared to get themselves to you know work through as many rounds as they could or massive anti-tank missiles that cost a huge amount uh, these were people who just lived in kiev and had gone to the front line because they knew that's what their duty was what ideological commitment i wonder then they came back and remained committed to the cause and wanted to help reform the country the reformists so he's giving away a huge amount here uh, international objective is what's missing he says the resistance has been vigorous but we need international objective 
Never mind how tough the Ukrainians are, how determined they are, the main issue, the first order issue is we need to re-establish the global respect for the rules. That's the rules-based Western order, of course. And he says we shouldn't be looking to NATO or the UN to drive this because they're not set up to do that. Just look to individual nations that will be the security guarantors of the Ukrainians. So the US, Britain, Poland. He doesn't want to accept that Crimea is gone and he lumps it in with Donbass, although there are two completely different legal situations there. It mustn't be like that, he says. So uh, finally, he says he applauds the Czech decision by whom he doesn't say to supply T-72 tanks and armoured vehicles. Good for them, he says. The Poles have been amazing too. And uh, if this reformist group hadn't been put together with this deep state backing, Ukraine would have crumbled. I think he's admitting there more than he would care about what, what state the Ukrainian nation is in and how mature it is in its identity. Um, Let's go on to, sorry for uh, bringing that on, we'll we'll have a, a testimony here a couple of minutes long uh, from a British man of the older generation, by the sound of him from the home, home counties, a very ordinary guy, who's married um, a Ukrainian lady and lives in Mariupol in the southeast where people have been starved and frozen and uh, uh, denied water and gas and everything else. Um, He's now uh, come out uh, of uh, his besieged state, and he's describing with quite accurate uh, distances and times what happened when the uh, crucial day of fighting allowed him to get out and who was blocking him in. Um, one morning, second or third day, the, the days are a bit, sorry, the days are a bit um, confused. Second or third day, we heard a really loud bang and we looked out the window and there was a um, a gun, a big gun, right by our block of flats. So we immediately went down to the basement. We're on the 10th floor. And um, so we ran down to the basement and then they, after some time, they moved the gun to somewhere else, which was good. It, no, it wasn't Russian. I'm assuming it was um, Ukrainian army, but it could have been one of the um, splinter groups. I don't know. A couple of nights we spent going up to the flat, and then we'd hear, as they got closer, we would go back. To, oh, my wife's just telling me it was three nights, so I can't remember. Uh, as the blast got closer, we then started to be ready, sleeping in our clothes on the bed. I think one morning my wife Tanya said to me that our, our flat had been hit and um, it, was, it was on fire. So that was it. We had um, what we'd carried down to the basement over several nights. Um, the flat's completely gone, most of the blocks. I, on about day four, my wife's mother lived in a different district about maybe two kilometres away and obviously she was worried. And she lives in an old block, so you can imagine the basement's not great. So she wanted to go and get her mum, so we set off with the dog. And we'd gone about maybe five, 600 metres. And there were two, two soldiers, again, Ukrainian soldiers, I don't know who they were. And my wife spoke to them and said, is it okay to continue? And they said, yes. And we walked about 20 metres and a shell hit the road about 15 metres from us. They'd taken I don't know, eight buses and put them all across the roads, blocking everything, smashed them to pieces and obviously burst the tyres so it was more difficult to move them. But then we heard a rumour that 
the Ukraine, no, not Ukraine army, one of the militias, I'm not sure. Were at the, it could have been Azov, but I, I can't remember. We're at the port, which was sort of two hour, to, looking at the block, all these coaches across the buses across the road, was directly behind us. So if they were going to try and hit the Russian tanks as they were trying to clear the road, it put us in a direct line of fire. So in the person of John Joyce, we have prima facie a very credible and carefully enunciated testimony uh, that Ukrainian forces, whether regular or militia, were blocking him and uh, his in-laws in their homes during the fire. Now, let's go on and see more of the British angle to the Ukrainian propaganda war. On screen at the moment is a tweet with a video by Anton Giroshenko. I will start playing the video silently while I describe this. Uh, you can see two girls, uh, apparently Ukrainians, who've been asked to pose behind a green, uh, in front of a green screen that is then mounted as an image of London. And the, the point they're making is, look, these tourists in London, oh dear, London's being bombed. There's great destruction. The gherkins on fire, the London eyes crumbled. Uh, there's Russian jets all over the place. Ukraine is bleeding. And then look at the um, errors in the English. If we do not arm them with weapon, we shall, rather than will be, not Putin's next victim, but the next victim of Putin. So it's written by Ukrainian PR supremos uh, this time, rather than directly by the British. But if you look at the left of the slide, it's Anton Giroshenko, who at the bottom describes himself as an advisor to the inter interior minister of Ukraine, founder of the Institute of the Future, hmm, and an official enemy of, here's another English error, the Russian propaganda. Here's the covering note with which he tweeted that video. The German Luftwaffe, not even the Nazis, he says the Luftwaffe, dropped thousands of bombs in London in the Second World War, killing more than 30,000 people. The UK can help to stop destruction of Ukraine and prevent it happening in London again, as if it was an equivalence. We appreciate your support, however, so the same line of give, give more. We appreciate, however, we need more heavy weapons to win and completely ignoring that it's Parliament that votes supply to the military. He says Boris Johnson, who's the executive, arm Ukraine now. There's been quite a few responses to that. Uh, the well-known Bob Moran, lately of the Daily Telegraph and now a great uh, cartoonist largely on Telegram, uh, uh, has uh, provided this before this tweet. And this was this was one response by Rosa Lux. He says uh, she says you're appealing to fear, disgusting propaganda. Uh, Trudeau, Biden and Johnson are saying Russian man bad while standing on a pile of skulls labeled Iraq, Libya, Syria, Vietnam, Afghanistan. Um, Red Star Belgrade recently played Glasgow Rangers in the UEFA League and looked at all the wars that they've listed, although these are mainly American wars rather than specifically British ones. Quite, quite a few are British too, actually. All we are saying is give peace a chance. Back to the tweet replies. One by Andrew Barnes says, why are you posting such rank and abhorrent propaganda to start a real war in Ukraine? You are showing just the type of fake video being used and undermining your own goal of convincing countries to start a world war. Back down, soldier. Not, not Stradamus says, it's a war, but you have time for TV ads. Hmm. Uh, next, we have a little cartoon about uh, volunteers being fed into the meat grinder while Zelensky um, uh, does a thumbs up. And the same person who tweeted that said, said no, that's someone else, sorry. But here's the last one, Euclid. And I'm pleased with this because this was actually something I'd requested on my Telegram channel, uh, Eastern Approaches. Uh, I asked for this kind of reply to Geroshenko, polite and to the point, no, we are not going to start World War Three for you. Now, let's go on to Butcher again. Uh, we have. Uh, 
quite a, a limitation on time, so we'll do this quickly. But writing for Donbass Insider, I know I'll be accused of partisanship by even featuring this title, but Christelle Neon, the author, uh, is one of the many French journalists, a whole clutch of them now, who's bringing out a lot of information, such as we've recent, recently been reporting. And this piece is also available in French, the original French, and in Russian from the site. She writes about the massacre of Bucha as a Ukrainian Timishwara because there was a false flag claim in 1989 during the revolt against Ceausescu. Um, so uh, what she's writing about is the uh, bodies lying in the street, which we can see on the screen at the moment. These bodies are... Um, Obviously, the, the, the big claim, uh, the big contention is how many days were they lying in the streets and how bloated might they have got if they had indeed been lying on the ground for the last three weeks of March while nobody reported the issue, not very credible. So Neon talks about this uh, problem. Um, she she uh, uh, summarises even more than others have done the timeline involved. So obviously, I won't read all that out, but you can see that the key thing is the 30th of March, the Russian army withdraws from Bucha. The 31st of March, the mayor gives a gleeful uh, victory speech with no mention of any atrocities. Pretty telling detail. I'm withholding judgment. I'm just pointing out that we can't make a judgment yet. Uh, Telegram channel at the time says nothing for the last three days of March about any atrocities. Russian original uh, report embedded. On the 1st of April, a video was posted, and this was no April Fools, by a Ukrainian woman uh, who says that there were bodies in the street, but uh, this seems to be because of a recent shelling, because of contextual information. The next day, Ukrainian soldiers start trickling in as they've caught wind that the Russians have already left, and there's no mention on that day of bodies, which has even caused some Ukrainians to think that there's some fishiness about the subsequent claims. Not even the Ukrainians were claiming that day that there were bodies there. Uh, then there's a big scandal. Well, I won't go into all the details, but it seems to have been that uh, the Azov moved in at this point, the Azov battalion, and started punishing those who hadn't been pro um, uh, Ukrainian enough during the Russian occupation of the town. Look, Gerashenko's name, which my mouse cursor just uh, featured, because Gerashenko is the mastermind of this propaganda too. Uh, the whole point is the Bucha um, uh, claims started surfacing a couple of days after the Ukrainian regular and militia forces started coming in. And then we get more and more detail, which uh, seems to boil down to uh, which armband the civilians were wearing. You're not allowed to wear no armband in towns that are in the front line here. You have to wear either a blue one to show you're with uh, the Ukrainian MOD and the uh, uh, extreme battalions, or a white one to show that you're well disposed towards the Russians. And then reprisals happen, it seems, if you weren't wearing the blue Ukrainian one when the Ukrainians retake territory. They've retaken quite a lot of land in the north of Kiev now uh, in a counter-offensive. So then we yeah, four different locations emerging. We'll go on through that uh, very quickly because we don't have the time. But the main one is Yablonskaya Street. Uh, four locations. Look at each one individually. The, the maps there. It's far too early to be definitive about this. Look at the complexity. This is, you know, battle damage assessment is difficult enough even when you've got your own forces involved, let alone when you're not on the ground. Mass grave at a church, etc. So we'll move on from that to see that the moon of Alabama, worth quoting for a second time, has a piece up about the Butcher provocation as well. And people should go to that for the most succinct timeline, which is right here again, Russian troops leaving on the 30th. The uh, Ukrainian defense ministry doesn't publish the video of the alleged Russian atrocities till the 3rd of April. And the New York Times was unable, it admits, grudgingly to independently verify the assertions, but it still carried them. Uh, Azra Dale, one of our viewers who started a Substack blog, 
uh, has gone on to further details, satellite images and videos, and she doesn't mention it here, but also alleged intercept of military voice by the German Bundesnachrichtendienst, their foreign intelligence service, are being presented without the original metadata. So when I was at GCHQ dealing with voice intercept and indeed working closely with the imagery guys, they would never have asserted a single source intelligence piece had evidentiary standard and certainly not devoid of its metadata. The only way to make it plausible is to have it with the complete original metadata, which no intelligence service is ever going to do. In fact, most of this data comes from contractors who run the satellite or the telcos. So they're not going to be available in many cases, even to the original officers, let alone to a judicial body. So Azra says it doesn't make uh, make sense. And her main paragraph here is, does it make sense that bodies were left scattered across a major street in a major suburb of, Ukraine, of, of Kiev since the 11th of March? and that this wasn't announced to the world until the 3rd, or in her version, the 4th of April. This finds this she finds completely incongruous. Nevertheless, there is a, a demand at the European Parliament that you accept the narrative. So the RAIR Foundation in the USA, not my favourite source, but their main person, Amy Mech, does source accurate subtitles in a, a good track record of that. She reports that uh, last week at plenary uh, European Parliament session in Strasbourg, Francesca Donato, uh, a non-aligned MEP from Italy who was kicked out, actually, of her Liga Nord uh, faction for being uh, sus uh, suspicious of COVID jabs, uh, had a, a couple of minutes to talk in plenary. And in the chair was one of the 14 vice presidents of the European Parliament, Pina Picciano, a fellow Italian uh, from the socialist bloc. And as we see in the write-up, uh, the main point Donato was making was Ukraine hadn't been peaceful for eight years beforehand, the eight years we're not supposed to think about. It wasn't even democratic, she says. And then we get to uh, her intervention, uh, a, a bit of video. Uh, it's only a few seconds of Italian, but even if you're only listening in audio, listen to the calm, measured way in which she's making the point at, the, at this section that the European Union is prolonging the war by sending arms and by sending ideological reinforcement to the Ukrainians. Quindi ulteriori fidanziamenti europei all'industria delle armi o ulteriori sanzioni potranno solo prolungare questa guerra, aumentando il conto delle vittime e aggravando una crisi che colpisce oggi un'Europa già debole. L'Unione Europea dovrebbe recuperare un ruolo di terzietà e obiettività, individuando un proprio rappresentante che sia super partes. Her main point at the end was the Latin phrase super partes, meaning above the parties to the conflict. She's making this apparently radical and unacceptable suggestion that an international parliament of legislators representing the people, the voters, is supposed to not take hook, line and sinker the propaganda of one side, for which she is severely reprimanded, and again, if you don't understand Italian, listen to the different tone of voice here, by the vice president who was in the chair that day, again, as I say, a countrywoman of hers, uh, a rising star and very system aligned. Um, listen to what uh, Pina, the, uh, uh, the speaker for the day, uh, has to say, and if you're watching the subtitles as well, or if you're not, I'll, I'll summarise them. She says it's absolutely unacceptable to voice this because it's, it's almost childish. She says in this clip, not only that we've judged that uh, at the EU we've already judged the Russians guilty, she doesn't even say the Russian defence minister Shoigu is guilty, she says Putin, the head of state, is guilty. About this there can be no de debate because we've already decided to side with the Italians and we are not equanimous. She's repeating back to uh, Donato this wording of super partes. She says we're not above the parties, we are partisan for the Ukrainians. Let's watch and listen. Grazie, onorevole Donato. Allora, io ho evitato di interrompere, però mi sia consentito di dire una cosa, 
che quest'Aula non può diventare in alcun modo il megafono di posizioni che sono assolutamente eh, non, non accettabili. Il massacro di Bucia, onorevole Donato, è sotto gli occhi di tutti e noi non possiamo accettare, lo dico con molta chiarezza, che in quest'Aula venga messo in discussione addirittura questo. I massacri che stanno avvenendo in questi minuti, in queste ore di civili innocenti sono sotto gli occhi di tutti e in quest'Aula non è accettabile che questo possa essere messo in discussione. Quest'Aula, onorevole Donato, non è equidistante. C'è un aggressore che è Putin e c'è un aggredito che sono i cittadini ucraini che quest'Aula e le istituzioni europee difendono. Se ne faccia una ragione. E ora passo la parola all'onorevole Bot. And as Mrs. Donato went back to the rostra, to the hemicycle to take her seat, you can see how frankly astonished she was by this um, explosion uh, because Donato was, was uh, emoting from the chair and she's saying we're not equidistant. We're not uh, trying to take a neutral position. We've already decided which position to take. And at the end, she uses this rather unsuitable colloquial um, idiom of farsi una ragione, uh, which in the subtitles was, dealt, was translated deal with it. But in colloquial American English, it would be more like suck it up. You know, we've already decided Putin's the guilty party. Suck it up. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, related, I suppose, in a sense, uh, on uh, Monday's program, we were talking about Boris and his journey to uh, Kiev over the weekend and the announcement of further military support from the UK government. Well, Boris wasn't the only one uh, in Kiev, uh, also Ursula von der Leyen. So uh, here she is uh, with her uh, wonderful folder, uh, shaking hands with uh, Zelensky. And they were holding, uh, well, they were holding a fundraiser. Uh, here it is, Stand Up for Ukraine. Uh, and look who's in the in on the screen in the top right there. We've got uh, the Mr. boy, the boy Trudeau. Uh, and so, how, what did they achieve? Well, they achieved nine point one billion euros for the people of Ukraine. Uh, so they are clearly uh, changing. Or are they changing their economy? It looks very much like it. The, the, <laughs> let's just put a little bit of uh, uh, of context on this uh, here. Uh, well, before we do, uh, here is uh, release from. Uh, uh, um, the Department of Defense in the U.S. from uh, the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin talking about uh, the fact that the U.S. is training uh, troops and so on. So actually, uh, we're not uh, we've we've uh, broken that up a little bit. So we're not going to the section that I was thinking about. So you go ahead, Brian. Okay. Well, I, I've been looking at other sources of information about what's been happening in the Ukraine, and particularly Mariupol. I've got to say that uh, the gentleman on the right, Patrick Lancaster, who's former United States Navy serviceman, but he's now a journalist. He's been working in uh, Ukraine for a very long time, and he's been producing some uh, very interesting video clips. Uh, what is fascinating about them is that when you watch the people speaking and you listen to the translations, we know the translations are correct. These are people clearly telling the truth. Uh, so a picture of him on the right, but uh, underneath we've got some comment that's coming in from uh, people he was dealing with. Um, honestly, we don't know. It probably burned down. It could burn down, but people could go somewhere else. It seems like people are in the basement. Uh, there are people in the basement there. So he's trying to find people who are missing amongst the very small communities left in Mariupol in scenes of, of disaster. Um, this one was interesting because people were saying across the board that when the Russians came, things calmed down. 
And this gentleman is saying they gave us bread at least and canned meat. It was good. We saw bread so long ago, a month and a half ago. Uh, that's all. Thank you. And then they ask him his name and he says it's, it's Alexander. So there were a number of reports where people were saying that when the Russians came, things uh, became calmer. They were relieved to see them. And the, the Russians stri straight away started to try and help the situation and give them uh, sustenance. Um, this gentleman here is uh, fascinating. I watched this clip, thought about it, uh, and then as it went on, I realised that uh, Patrick Lancaster himself was well up to speed. I'll explain what I'm talking about. Um, this one, this gentleman here says, Ukrainians came and said it would be unsafe here, so go to the school. I think the hash 37 is the uh, number of that particular school. It was in the Correct. morning. And immediately on the next night, the school was heavily shelled. It was completely destroyed. We stayed here. Uh, so there's then a little bit of dialogue uh, in this district, in this house. I have a question. You said Ukrainians asked you to go to the school, right? And the gentleman says, yes. And what happened at that school? Uh, they came in the morning and said it would be unsafe here. Uh, if you go into the lane, you'll see it. So he's being pushed, the interview's continuing. So you said in the morning, Ukrainians said for you to go to the school. The man says yes. And the same evening, the school was shelled. Right, the school was destroyed. Question, do you think it was deliberate? To which the reply was, I don't just think there are facts. They, they said for us to go there as it would be safe there. And it burned while your house still stays. And the gentleman replies again, yes, our house still stay, is still in, there, it still stays, and the school is destroyed. So think for yourself. And of course, what they're discussing here is the fact the Ukrainians told civilians to go to a particular location of a school for safety. And then by an amazing coincidence, that, that place is heavily shelled. Uh, 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 in the night time. And we come back to this question, what are they doing with all these uh, munitions that are being given? Uh, well, I'll, I'll come on to that in a second, Mike, but uh, it goes on here. Uh, what is your opinion? What should the Ukrainian government has done? In, and the man says in 2015, they should have negotiated. Uh, do you mean since the beginning of the conflict? Yes, yes, yes. They shouldn't have been so stubborn as they decided that it should be only as they wish it to be. Uh, this was a young couple that he spoke to. Uh, in Ukraine, there's no information about what's really going on here. Uh, President Zelensky, can I swear at him? He announced that Mariupol will not surrender till the last Ukrainian here. I'd say till the last civilian as, as what they did here. Thank God there are a few. He means a few of us left because obviously this is a husband and wife um, who are part of those few civilians left. And um, then they're talking about the Russians coming. They gave us everything we asked for, food, medicines. Uh, what could you say to the rest of Ukraine about the situation here? They're asked, we went through hell. Get rid of your government as soon as possible. That's what I want to say. And then the uh, interviewer says, Europe and the USA said that Mariupol is Ukrainian and Russia did a bad thing. And the reply, I will tell you what, in 2014, when there was a referendum to, to join DPR, that Mariupol uh, joins and gets independence, 
about 98% voted for this. So uh, very, very quickly, Alex, because we're on the stop for time, this is uh, pretty obvious that the minimum we can say is there's a very different story to be told than the disgraceful propaganda and reports coming out from the BBC, UK and wider Western media as to what's actually gone on in Ukraine. Patrick Lancaster, uh, I think, is a top-notch civilian journalist. He always understates his case. His Russian is decent. His pronunciation's not great, but his vocab is all there. Uh, he mainly speaks, as you've seen, to older people who, in this very cool and tough manner characteristic of Slavs, say that they were shelled. They know exactly what shells came from where. They take note of these things. Their anger comes through in their gestures, but they remain civilised in their wording. Um, I don't see any reason to doubt what they said. As regards Mariupol joining Donetsk, Mariupol is not actually, actually not far south of the uh, Donetsk and ultimately Lugansk as well. And the whole point about the last eight years is there's a whole bunch of oblasts out east that could have joined the Donetsk and Lugansk uh, mini states that self-declared, but oblast by oblast, the mayors and the other authorities, uh, as uh, under loyalty to the central government in Kiev, overturned many of these referendum results. Of course, they're not internationally legally valid if it's just an oblast, that's the equivalent of a county. But this could have spread. The, the whole of the east and the south could have separated from Ukraine in 2014, 2015. The main figure that stopped it was Igor Kolomoisky, who controls effectively the mafia in the main city there, Dnipro, because he decided he wanted a pro-Ukrainian uh, US and, and uh, European-backed mafia uh, or, or, or a military situation to protect his business interests and to do deals with Biden. Uh, that's why the, uh, the DPR and LPR uh, independence movement didn't spread. But after this war, I fear that, it or I suspect it will. OK, thank you for that, Alex. We'll just end here. We've got some e emails, fascinating emails are coming into the UK column. This is just one. It's pretty self-explanatory from Jocelyn. Good afternoon. I was listening to your uh, today today's news. I thought if you don't know them yet, you can see videos on Donbass Insider and Leave Noir from war reporters. We're grossly lied to by our government. I am disgusted. Now, I, I haven't checked those two um, um, references, Donbass Insider and Lee Noir, so people can go and have a look for, for yourself. Please judge it carefully. But people are saying, yes, you can find other information. Uh, this one, uh, today's updates, these are videos from my Ukrainian friend today. I've asked her to update me daily with the latest on how the Azov Nazi brigade are being found out within Ukraine by the honest and not bought for world press. Videos are self-explanatory with subtitles in English. You can freeze the screen and pull those off and have a look for yourself. Be discerning because there's a lot of information that may be correct or it might be nearly correct. And it's up to all of us to check it. What are we being fed within the West? Well, we've seen the horrors of Ukraine uh, from some of the images on screen in UK column news. Uh, have a look at this video that was sent through to us. This is apparently what we are supposed to pay attention to. Let's uh, bring this one on screen. I'm standing up for Ukraine. To all the world leaders, we need you now more than ever before to answer the call from everyone, activists, advocates, and volunteers who are working to support refugees from Ukraine and around the world. Tomorrow, 
you'll need to decide how much support you'll be able to give to these people who have been forced to leave their homes, their country, their loved ones. Please, stand up for these refugees everywhere and give every bit of financial support that you can. Thank you. That was impressive. Well, that was pretty shocking, wasn't it? And of course, you noticed that she wasn't standing up at all. She was sitting down, but uh, uh, with a carefully placed flag. But uh, a thought leader, you don't need to think for yourselves, just follow Celine Dion and her words. That is what we are supposed to do in UK. The government is treating us as children or trying to just follow the celebrities. Mm. Let's end on Boris Johnson shaking hands with Zelensky. Uh, uh, with the statement there that he's going to pile in uh, thousands more weapons, which of course are going to cost UK uh, ultimately billions of pounds. And I'm going to contrast it with this. Uh, Plymouth, England, the 13th of April 2022, an 80-year-old lady has been sat in her house after a fall at three o'clock this morning. She's distressed and in pain still waiting for an ambulance to arrive from Derriford Hospital just nine miles away. The time of the verbal report made to me as I walked my dog is 8.45. So UK under Boris Johnson can't get an ambulance nine miles um, to an old lady who's had a fall, but we can give millions, billions of pounds into the hand of a man who is actively promoting Nazi battalions and ideology in Ukraine. I'm going to say to people who are involved with political parties, this is obscene and it is up to us to stand up and be counted to do something about it. And we shouldn't forget that a few days ago we shipped some British ambulances uh, to Ukraine. Thank you for Mike, because I had forgotten that. I tried to call the ambulance service in uh, in the Plymouth area in order to find out what the excuse was for the hours of delay in providing an ambulance. But of course, the phone just rang and rang. Nobody answered it. Uh, we'll carry on the case and see if we can find out more. But just think about what this Prime Minister Boris Johnson is doing. Uh, we're destroying food production. We're shutting down UK. We're sexualizing our children. And he's now opening the UK's coffers to put money in to help this war uh, be sustained in Ukraine. We'll leave you to think about that. Sorry to end on such a serious note as we come up to Easter, but I would like to say thank you very, very much to all the people who've sent us such wonderful cards, uh, giving us support and encouraging us to do more on UK Column News. That's been wonderful. Alex, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, stick, yeah, stick around on the main live stream for a bit of extra in a minute. Okay, thanks very much. We'll end the news there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.